First, I want to talk about what's what's going on right yes, now. Yes, of course. We are becoming a nation of bullies and the bullies. going to inherit a really dire situation. Frankly, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in American history. And you've seen school board meetings Declining descend into chaos. Vigilance. We don't need their protection. So let's look down Deviated the from the party line. When you'll fall short, Governor he's wrong. The mob never sleeps. At a time when virtues and opinions are being shouted at us from an unreliable mainstream media focused on ratings and profits rather than truth and accountability, it's more important now than ever that we listen to our experts. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Austin Nuppy from the Utah State University Political Science Department. I'm Michael Popa, and this is Deep Roots. Austin Nuppy received his PhD in political science from The Ohio State University in May 2019. His research focuses on the role of U.S. military intervention in shaping the beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors of civilians in fragile states. As a specialist in Middle East politics, Austin is also interested in the role of U.S. foreign policy in facilitating or inhibiting peacebuilding and post-conflict reconstruction in the Persian Gulf. His current book project examines variation in the effectiveness of U.S. military intervention in the post-9-11 period. Outside of Dartmouth, Austin is on the governing board of the Conflict to Peace Lab, C2P, at the Mershon Center for International Security Studies. His work has appeared in Political Analysis, Politics and Religion, and International Politics Reviews. It has been supported by the U.S. Institute of Peace, the John Templeton Foundation, the Mershon Center for International Security Studies, and the Ohio State Decision Science Collaborative. Dr. Nuppie, thank you for coming. Um, this is going to be a really productive conversation, I hope. Um, you know, obviously, you've got a lot of expertise in uh, what we're going to be talking about today, and I think it's going to be of great value to the people listening here. So, uh, you know, obviously, Afghanistan's been a really hot topic in the news lately with uh, the new Biden administration pulling all the troops out and uh, some of the side effects we've seen from that. Um, but, you know, the whole issue of Afghanistan isn't as, you know, new as some people want to think it is. It's not just this 20-year-old issue that started with 9-11 and now we've been in there since then. Um, you know, uh, it goes way, way back. You've Darius I of Babylonia in 500 BC, Alexander the Great of Macedonia in 329 BC, Muhammad of Ganzi in the 11th century, and several others, um, all before the West thought to get involved in Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, obviously it plays a pretty critical role in uh, other nations' foreign policies, not just today, but, you know, even 2,500 years ago. So why, I got to ask, has Afghanistan been such a hotly contested region for so long? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, so as an expert of U.S. foreign policy, I think Afghanistan is important, particularly if we think about uh, U.S. politics during the Cold War, uh, post-Cold War period, and certainly after 9-11. So if you, if you recall, the, uh, the original role the United States played in Afghanistan goes back to the 1980s mm -hmm. when it was a U.S.-Soviet Cold War competition. Soviets invade Afghanistan, uh, not unlike the, the U.S. approach. The U.S. funds the opposition, which uh, uh, at the time was known as the Mujahideen. It was a group of Islamist uh, uh, rebels opposing the Soviet occupation. We train and equip them as a way to frustrate the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. It just so happens that we provide then uh, a young Osama bin Laden and future al-Qaeda militants with a training ground mm -hmm. for how to fight a, a successful insurgency uh, some 20 years later. And so the U.S. experience goes back to the 1980s. Uh, in the interwar period, rather after the end of the Cold War in the 90s, there's a civil war between Taliban and other uh, tribal groups vying for control of their communities in, in, in these valley communities. And then uh, certainly after the attacks of September 11, 2001, the U.S. engages in a global war on terror under the auspice of preventing Afghanistan from being a safe haven or a proving ground for Islamist terror. Mm -hmm. And so the original um, 
um, motivation for that intervention was to prevent Afghanistan from being a, a safe haven for Al Qaeda. And we end up staying for 20 years, investing trillions of dollars, losing 2,400 U.S. service members, in addition to uh, US, uh, NATO allies and Afghan civilians as well. Yeah. So sort of playing off that, you know, Afghanistan seems to be the gateway between the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Um, Britain was in control of India and at least some uh, had some large influence in the surrounding regions for almost 100 years between the mid 19th and mid 20th century. Uh, after the fall of Napoleonic France in the early 19th century, you also had Russia try to creep in and get involved through Iran. Uh, within the past two decades, like you mentioned, it's been the same competition, but uh, now we see a lot of competition between the U.S. and China. Um, but it seems nobody really wanted Afghanistan for Afghanistan, but rather to control uh, and have access over the region and as a buffer to shield themselves from uh, their opponents. Uh, so what about Afghanistan itself uh, makes it a critical piece of territory for control of the Middle East and Southeast Asia? Yeah, so Afghanistan is one of these interesting territories in Central Asia, as you mentioned, is kind of a transit point between the Middle East. You think of a country like Iran or formerly Persia to the west, uh, to the north, the former Soviet republics, and then Russia, and then to the south, South Asia, uh, particularly India. So as you mentioned, in the 19th century, that is the 1800s, the British and Russians engage in this, uh, what we call a great game, basically two empires vying for colonial control. Of course, the British controlled India. That was the crown in their empire, and they were worried about Russian encroachment into Afghanistan because that would provide a transit point into India. Likewise, Russia, uh, the Russian empire, as any great power is wont to do, was concerned with a projecting power in its immediate sphere of influence. And so historically, it's always been concerned uh, with Central Asia because it's part of its uh, uh, near abroad. And so you have a Russian and British competition um, in the 20th century, Obviously, after World War II, you have U.S.-Soviet competition from 1945 to 1990. That explains U.S. Uh, opposition to uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And now, um, post even post-9-11, um, uh, with the U.S. intervention, you have regional states, Iran, Russia, now China, that are intimately interested in Afghanistan because of natural resources. Mm -hmm. So even though the U.S. has now evacuated its military presence, there's still an acute uh, interest from particularly the Chinese for its rare earth minerals. So there's still going to be intervention. It may not be a military occupation like we've seen in the past, but there'll certainly be great powers that are interested in Afghanistan for its natural resources and its uh, uh, geographic importance for the region. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, kind of talking about 9-11 again and our involvement there in the past 20 years, um, lots of people try and make issues like, you know, the past 20 years after 9-11, uh, cut and dry or black and white. You know, we never should have gone. We should stay there indefinitely. Um, obviously, between northern communist influence, pressure from Britain and other Western nations to let them control their foreign policy uh, and a deep-rooted regional tie to Islam, there's a lot going on over there uh, that could quite obviously make it not such a simple task to instill peace and uh, maintain stability in the region. So is there like a certain element about Afghanistan that people don't always understand when it comes to foreign policy? And what do people have a hard time understanding? about the region? That's a great question. I think from a U.S. perspective, um, we went in under the auspices of security concerns, right? We knew that al-Qaeda and other Islamist uh, insurgent groups were using uh, Afghanistan as a safe haven because it's what we call a fragile state. So uh, it, it's, it's a country that's had a um, underdeveloped economy, lots of uh, local political violence between warring uh, factions, tribes, criminal elements. And historically, um, in the past, has had monarchies and actually has had somewhat of a centralized state. It's not always been what we refer to as a fragile or failing state, but lacks a certain internal cohesion or an internal capacity. So you may have a, uh, a government that's represented in the capital of Kabul, but they don't maintain or are unable to govern the entire country, right? It's a country that is mountainous, has really a rough um, 
an intimidating geography, difficult place to govern, even if you had a functioning legitimate government, a functioning economy, uh, uh, an effective military, et cetera. With those things lacking, then it provides an opportunity for um, uh, militant groups then to operate within those bounds. And so the U.S. went in uh, under the auspice of, of terrorism, rightfully so, but we failed to understand uh, a lot of the internal political socioeconomic developments that made that estate uh, uh, hospitable for for Islamist groups. Um, and we failed to learn the lessons of the past in that um, regardless of a great power's good intentions, how much state building they want to do in terms of development, providing security for civilians, uh, facilitating uh, legitimate democratic elections, uh, the longer you stay, and particularly the longer you have a military presence, it's only it's an inevitable fact that you'll be perceived by locals as a military occupier. Mm-hmm. And people don't like being occupied, right, as a matter of, uh, as a matter of fact. And so um, it was only a matter of time before uh, Afghans realized that even though the United States and its NATO partners had a massive military presence, massive economic presence, development uh, efforts, uh, they were going to go home at some point. And who the civilian population was going to have to deal with was either the central government in Kabul, which was weak, or the Taliban insurgency. So, you know, you've mentioned fragile states a couple times in this idea that there's, you know, some nations and some states out there that aren't uh, inherently capable of sort of uh, stabilizing themselves and have really a hard time maintaining a functioning government. Um, what are some other states that we might be familiar with that are also fragile? And uh, what are some of the qualifications that you could uh, look for to recognize what a fragile state might be? That's a great question. You know, it's one of these um, terms or categories that has an inherently relative reference point, right? It's like rel- <laughs> fragile relative to what? Um, when we think about what makes states function, it's their ability to govern, which is to legitimately uh, represent the people, but also provide public goods and services, right? So not only do they have functioning institutions, but can they provide economic opportunity, safety and security, um, roads, right, sanitation, uh, all these things that are really f- uh, foundational for states to to function. So when we talk about a fragile state, it has some deficit, Um either in its ability to govern legitimacy, that that is to maintain legitimate political authority, or to provide basic goods and services to the civilian population um, within the state. And so, um, unfortunately, um, Afghanistan, is it's in Central Asia, but it's nearby quite a few of these states that uh, uh, are fragile with respect to what we've talked about. So you can think about a place like Iraq, certainly Syria, certainly uh, Libya and North Africa, or Yemen in the Persian Gulf. Absolutely. So after declaring independence in 1919, Afghanistan was a longtime ally of Russia's, um, obviously exuding their communist influence throughout the country um, before Russia invaded them during the Cold War in the late 70s. So how did Soviet relations come to transform the region of Afghanistan into uh, what we saw during the Cold War era in the late 90s, early 2000s? That's a great question. So if if you recall during the Cold War, uh, after 1945, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were interested in competing globally. And what that means is building or carving out their own sphere of influence, building alliances and local partnerships to make uh, make sure that states like Afghanistan remain in their sphere of influence. So Afghanistan is important because geographically, it's in Central Asia near the Soviet Union, certainly the former Soviet republics. At the same time, the U.S. had an acute interest in places like Iran. Prior to 1979, the Islamic Revolution, mm-hmm. the U.S. supported the, bah- the Pahlavi monarchy, an, anti, an anti-communist um, authoritarian monarch in Iran, which is neighboring Afghanistan, right? So you have to keep in mind when you think about Afghanistan during the Cold War that it's basically the, the victim or the, the client state of intense proxy competition between a Soviet sphere of influence in the region and then U.S. US allies and clients, um, particularly in the Persian Gulf, uh, Iran, 
Turkey as well. So it was kind of caught in the middle between this proxy struggle of, of the two superpowers competing, uh, competing to influence the country. Of course. So out of the Soviet-Afghan war, we saw the creation of the Islamic Al-Qaeda, I believe in 1988, um, which opposed first Western involvement in the region and the occupation you were sort of mentioning earlier that no one really tends to favor. But uh, after Russia left in 1989, that anti-West sentiment uh, turned towards outside the country itself. Um, we saw, uh, started to see a lot of terrorist attacks outside of the borders of Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Um, what do you think brought these anti-West sentiments to surface? Well, that's, that's a massive question. Right? We could fill books and books with that. Um, with respect to al-Qaeda in particular, we have to keep in mind that during the 90s, as bin Laden is building out this network, al-Qaeda means the base, right, in Arabic. He's building a network of former uh, um, uh, ideological allies that had fighting experience on battlefields like Afghanistan. He's trying to um, uh, build a cohesive movement, and he airs or he tells the West, the U.S., uh, Great Britain, uh, Western Europe, the series of grievances that motivate al-Qaeda's attacks against Western civilians, right? So he is aggrieved by the U.S. support for the state of Israel, right, as a, as a Zionist occupier of the land of Palestine, in the opinion of, of bin Laden and his acolytes, right? He is um, um, opposing U.S. support for uh, autocratic uh, uh, dictators in the Middle East, people like Mubarak in Egypt and uh, the Saudi monarchy, um, um, you can think about the Baathists, the Baathists uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq or, or uh, Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. That's the second grievance. The third is uh, this, the, the presence of U.S. troops in the holy cities of uh, in Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is the home to Mecca and Medina, two of the most holy cities for Islam. So bin Laden sees U.S. influence supporting autocratic states, supporting the state of Israel, having a military presence in a really a holy, a holy territory. And so he uses a set of three or four grievances. Um, to recruit and build solidarity within his group, then to strike, um, uh, to strike U.S. and Western influences in the Middle East, and then obviously in the early 2000s beyond the region as well. So obviously, one of the most horrifying and glaring parts of U.S. Afghan history is the attacks on September 11, 2001, um, in which we just honored the 20th anniversary just a few weeks ago. Um, so I have to ask personally, how do you remember 9/11? That's a great question. So I. Uh, was born in 1986, which means I was a sophomore in high school. I was 16 years old. I was going to high school in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was getting ready for school. Uh, it was about 6.30 in the morning or maybe 6.45 where uh, um had heard about it or saw it on the t television as, as I was getting ready for school. And then uh, subsequently through the school day, it was on TV and kind of obviously for most of us, right, to various extents that uh, really disrupted uh, work and school and, and family life. My experience was a little bit different in that I was on the West Coast and didn't have any family uh, family or friends in New York City or Shanksville, uh, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C. at that point. So I felt uh, fairly insulated from it, but had a, a keen sense that this was going to fundamentally transform the U.S. Uh, US role in the world and, and how we went about foreign policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously looking back at those videos even nowadays, you know, I was only six months at the time when it happened, sure. but even watching those videos nowadays of, you know, people jumping from the building and the planes hitting the building itself, it's it's really horrifying to see what happened that day. And, uh, you know, 20 years from now to see the state of our relation with Afghanistan, it's been been pretty interesting to think about. Um, so, of course, 9-11 was not the first interaction between America and Afghanistan on an international scale. Uh, lots of people seem to think that there was scant terrorism in the Afghanistan region and then boom, out of nowhere, you know, two planes come flying into the World Trade Center un unantagonized. Uh, so what were some of the American involvements in the region beforehand that led up to September 11th? Uh, that's a great question, right? So um, 
the U.S. involvement in the Middle East uh, really it uh, starts during the Cold War and then the post-Cold War period, starting 1990, the U.S. is the sole remaining superpower. Right, the Soviet Union collapses pretty unexpectedly, and the U.S. then inherits a host of foreign policy opportunities and also challenges in the region. And so even before the end uh, of the Cold War competition, you can think about the U.S. involvement in a fragile country like Lebanon. We had a deployment of, of U.S. Marines. The Marine barracks is bombed in Beirut. Uh, French and U.S. soldiers are killed. It's in the mid-1980s. That causes uh, President Ronald Reagan at the time to redeploy or leave uh, Lebanon in response to that attack. Um, Despite that fact, uh, the U.S. maintains a really robust military and economic presence in the region. Uh, Saddam Hussein, obviously, in, in 1990, 1991, invades his neighboring Kuwait in a war of aggression that the U.S. and international coalition uh, oppose. Um, and so you have U.S. involvement in Iraq as early as 1991. And then in the intervening period, you have instances of terrorism, uh, al-Qaeda directly against U.S. military assets. You think about in 1998, there was a bombing of, a, uh, of the USS Kola military mm -hmm. naval ship in the port of Aden in the country of Yemen. That was 1998 um, that killed uh, U.S. sailors and service uh, personnel. And that was one of the first um, uh, really public, uh, public attacks of al-Qaeda against the U.S. military that would make the front page of the New York Times or Washington Post. So really got a sense, despite the fact that al-Qaeda had been around for, like you mentioned, maybe a decade or eight years at that point, mm -hmm. um, uh, between 1990 and 2001, uh, U.S. involvement in the Middle East um, uh, certainly had exposure to or, or, or experience with Islamist terror. 9-11 was not the first time we, we experienced this. It wasn't something that, that popped out of the blue, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned 9-11 specifically because, like I said, you know, I was born right around then. And, you know, that's that's how I remember our initial engagement with Afghanistan is, you know, 9-11. And then, you know, these past 20 years of war, 9-11 um, is sort of, at least to those of us that have only been around for, you know, a handful of decades, uh, all we can seem to remember is everything post 9-11. Right. Um, and so after 9-11, this is really where we start to see an incredibly heavy hand um, of the United States involved um, in Afghanistan. Um, and so how is it that 9-11 changed the course of development in Afghanistan, specifically uh, with the U.S.? And was it inevitable that we would end up there even without being instigated? That's a great question. Um, historical counterfactuals are always tricky, right? Uh, absent an al-Qaeda attack originating uh, from elements in Afghanistan on the United States, I don't think we would have, we would have seen a, a direct U.S. Mil military intervention, though there's a high likelihood that even in the absence of 9-11, U.S. foreign policy would be concerned about terrorism and about fragile states of Afghan being being one of many in that region. Um, what was your other? Oh, no worries. Um, uh, how did 9-11 change? Yeah, how did 9-11 yeah. change the course of development in Afghanistan? Because like you mentioned a yeah. minute ago, there was you know a lot of discourse out there between the United States and other NATO allies in Afghanistan um, and other terrorism events that occurred. Um, but 9-11 itself, I feel like, really changed the course of how things have gone over the past two decades. So um, how is it that 9-11 did change the course? Certainly, yeah. So what we what we see, right, in, in 1990, in the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. emerges as the sole uh, global superpower, what we would call hegemon, right? It's um, at the top of the heap of this international system, has a robust set of alliances with places like NATO, the Western European states, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, and, but it lacks a great power competitor. So as a unipolar power, the United States um, has this, a vast amount of military, economic power, political influence, what we would call soft power, right? cultural influence to shape states. And yet a lot of foreign policy during this 10-year uh, period 
is in some respects aimless, right? You have Bill Clinton in office, 1993 to 2000, uses the U.S. military for humanitarian interventions in places like Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, humanitarian relief in Haiti. So we try to use the U.S. military as a as as social workers in places like Haiti and, and the Balkans. Um, but you have to keep in mind that the U.S. Uh, population at this point is ready uh, for a smaller uh, global responsibility, smaller defense budgets. We're ready to cash in on what uh, George H.W. Uh, uh, Bush, Bush 41, called the peace dividend. Mm -hmm. So uh, during during uh, Bush's time in office before Bill Clinton, we cut the size of the U.S. military. We cut the defense budget, trying to figure out, I'm always wrestling with this question, what ought the, the U.S. role in the world to be, right? George W. Bush uh, during the 2000 campaign is not anticipating uh, engaging in lots of military adventures abroad. He is um, uh, styles himself during the campaign as a realist, someone that is um, more in favor of some uh, perhaps non-intervention or more modest role for the U.S. in the world. He is aware on the horizon of the emergence of China as a great power competitor to U.S. interests. But on the morning of, of September 11th, that all changes, right, in that we have an attack on U.S. soil that kills 3,000-plus people in New York as well as um, people aboard uh, Flight 93 in Shanksville. That, yeah. And, and in Washington, and that changes our perspective. And so we then take the, the vast amount of U.S. military power, diplomatic power, and economic development, foreign aid, towards combating a global war on terror, right? Which now, in retrospect, seems, um, seems kind of strange, right? How do you defeat a tactic used by weaker actors to attack a stronger state? Mm -hmm. um, you could eliminate every terrorist on the globe, and you would still have terrorism as a tactic, right? What we call a weapon of the weak. Yet nonetheless, Bush... Uh, Vice President Cheney, Don Rumsfeld at the Pentagon, et cetera, uh, see an opportunity to remake these states in the U.S. image. So it's about combating terrorism, punishing al-Qaeda and its supporters for the attacks on U.S. and European allies in subsequent years. But it's also about remaking states into functioning liberal democracies. And so Bush in his eight years in office is keenly um, committed to this idea that we can use military power for ideological or, uh, or um, uh, humanitarian aims. So on the one hand, we can defeat or combat terror. On the other, we can rebuild states, give people the opportunity to participate in elections based on this uh, assumption, right, that um, everyone has the desire to be free, to speak their mind, to enjoy civil liberties. And so it is the uh, mission of, the United States, of U.S. foreign policy to rebuild or introduce democracy at the end of a rifle barrel, more or less. And what we see in Afghanistan, then again in Iraq in March 2003, is that it doesn't go too well, despite the... Um, the, the brave performance and commitment of U.S. service personnel, the vast amount of financial resources we dedicate those, and then obviously the commitment of our, our, our NATO and, and Arab state allies as well. So on that topic of peacekeeping um, or peace building, uh, rather, uh, after almost 20 years of having boots on the ground, we've really seen a lot of change in the region. Um, a lot would argue for the better, uh, which has stabilized a lot of the polarity there. Uh, we saw more rights for women and terrorism on the decline, uh, as well as some other boons from us being out there. Um, but the question since, you know, late 2000s, uh, mid-2010s has been, where, uh, when are we getting out? Uh, the problem was taken care of and no other business needed to be done out there, so to speak. And we saw a lot of anti-war sentiments begin to grow, especially during the uh, Obama era. Uh, but despite wanting to bring troops home, Obama realized that pulling everyone home wasn't feasible. And the same course of action happened with Donald Trump. You know, let's let's bring our boys home. But then he realized the skeleton crew would probably have to remain out there to continue the ongoing stability and uh, to support the Afghan military in the capacity that we had trained them. 
Um, so going back to before the recent pullout, um, as if we were still out there, does the U.S. owe it to Afghanistan to keep a skeletal force present uh, to help maintain that stability? Or is there a, would, would there have been a certain time that we needed to come home? That's a great question, right? And that that is at the heart of how you think about U.S. foreign policy priorities. The types of um, the tactics and capabilities you think are most appropriate in a place like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, uh, wherever, is really contingent or based on what you think the priorities are. If the priority is to prevent failed states or fragile states from becoming safe havens, then you want to maintain uh, even a light footprint of military trainers, special forces, uh, special operations forces, perhaps air power. You can think about the drone war and its adverse consequences there. Um, and so what we've seen, uh, this actually occurs in the middle of uh, or the transition from Obama's first to his second term, a transition from this uh, heavy, heavy footprint military occupation style of state building to a light footprint where you maintain several thousand U.S. service personnel, you, you uh, continue the, one of the, the key objectives of state building, rebuilding political and economic institutions, roads, schools, hospitals, sanitation, et cetera. But you use the U.S. military in an advise, assist, and equip capacity. That's just his Pentagon jargon for mm -hmm. training host nation forces. And so despite the fact we've left Afghanistan, you may very well see that in the future, um, U.S. is still doing that in a place like Iraq. We left Iraq in December 2011, went back in June 14 when the Islamic State arrives, and we still have a residual training capacity in, in, in Iraq now. Uh, the same thing with uh, fragile or failing states in the Sahel, this belt of states between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, places like Chad and Mali um, that, that, that are, uh, have uh, governments at risk of, of Islamic terror. And so um, I suspect what we'll see is we actually saw this in President Biden's speech to the United Nations yesterday. Yet terrorism was a low priority, but it was mentioned alongside COVID and trade and responsible competition with China, this counterterrorism mission. I suspect what we'll see is the U.S. serving in, in an advise, uh, advisory uh, capacity as gotcha. opposed to deploying troops or sending air power. Yeah. Right? So with the pullout that we just had um, – that was announced in April. Um, we saw a lot of turmoil come out of it. Um, it seemed pretty hasty. Uh, at first, it was promised that everyone, troops, interpreters, green card holders, and pretty much any ally to the U.S. Um, during the Afghan war would get a free ticket home uh, to the United States. But as the pullout process continued, the administration, pretty out in the open, uh, began dialing down and going back on some of the promises, uh, eventually only pulling out uh, the troops and whatever American citizens they could muster. Uh, even today, almost three weeks after the pullout deadline, we still don't have quite full accountability of who's out there. Um, so given that pulling out seemed to be an inevitable goal of the Biden administration, uh, that's something he's been pretty gung-ho about since he was inaugurated. Um, was this the way to go, the rapidity with which we did the pullout? Or uh, if not, what kind of process would have maintained the region's stability that uh, I think a lot of us were hoping for? Well, this is a massive question that we're going to be debating here for decades to come. Um, as you recall, right, we're, we're recording this in mid-September uh, 2021. All this has happened just four or five weeks ago. So there's still lots of uncertain uncertainty and unanswered questions as to um, uh, to what extent was this an intelligence failure, right? The U.S. intelligence community, at least insofar as it communi communicated to the president and his team, was that a place like Kabul, the Afghan capital, would be able to withstand Taliban uh, offensive for something like three months. And instead, we see that the, the Afghan state collapse in three weeks. We see massive defections of the Afghan National Army. 80% of those under arms in the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police defect, either uh, uh, flee or, or displaced or uh, leave their posts or collaborate, support, weakly acquiesce to Taliban presence. 
right? So that, that's one of the questions. Was this an intelligence failure uh, on the one hand, or is this something that many anticipated and it's one of those pull off the bandaid type moments, right? The other is um, to what extent was the timing or way we pulled out prudent or wise? That's something we're going to be debating uh, certainly in the years to come. There was uh, at the time here, uh, even in August as events were unfolding, discussion about why didn't we pull out during the uh, during the winter months when the fighting season uh, relents, right? Afghanistan's cold and mountainous. There's less violent combat in the winter months than in the fall and summer. Was it a question of timing? What is it? Was it a question of the type of force structure we had on the ground? Right, there are reports in the New York Times of meetings between the CIA and uh, senior Afghan uh, Taliban commanders, rather saying, "Okay, who's going to control the capital? We're coming in. Do you want to be able to maintain?" A perimeter security beyond the Afghan, uh, beyond the Kabul airport, or not? The U.S. says oh, we're going to provide um, um, uh, stationary support to the airport, but not beyond that. So the Taliban comes in. Obviously, they're a, are an irregular guerrilla group or an insurgent group. They can't maintain complete control. So then, what we see is a suicide bombing attack, uh, two attacks right on U.S. service personnel as we're as we're we're evacuating. So that was a that was a tactical or operational question about who's going to maintain control. There's the question of the timing. There's the question of uh, the prudence of a pullout, the type of residual force you keep there. Those are all questions of, of your, your goals, right? Broader questions of foreign policy priorities, which are not just contingent on Afghanistan, but also the, the president's wider foreign policy agenda, U.S. public opinion, those sort of things. So it goes beyond just an immediate tactical or operational decision. Absolutely. And like you said, it is going to be the next few years, if not decades, that we watch a lot of this unfold and see if this was the right decision to make. Um, so my most recent article is called uh, Back to Square 01, uh, sort of poking fun at the fact that after 20 years of conflict and trillions of dollars worth of investment and spending in Afghanistan, uh, we just seem to have simply handed all back to the Taliban in a matter of months um, with the added bonus of handing them over $70 billion worth of intel and military equipment, That's right. uh, not to mention selling out a lot of Afghan allies still there. Um, with this left a vacuum that now appears to be getting filled by uh, Russia and China, let alone you know the Taliban having consumed the country again. Um, so in the past couple of years, we've seen China especially try and spread their influence in the region uh, by building artificial islands in the South China Sea. Uh, and every year, they're stealing even more and more intellectual property. Um, I think now it's over uh, upwards of $500 billion um, in American intellectual property. So now that we've seen that this region open up, um, there's reports of China making deals with the Taliban to access some of those uh, rare mineral deposits that you were mentioning earlier. Right. Um, how will the U.S. defend against seeping Chinese influence in the region, especially now that we've given up such a strategic position? That, that's a question of uh, American grand strategy. What are the priorities, the foreign pro foreign policy priorities the United States has vis-a-vis -vis China? And that's all the question. That's the question of our of the moment, right? Something that's going to dominate the rest of our lives. Certainly, U.S.-China competition. Uh, uh, you have to think first about the U.S. goals. Is it a matter of um, promoting or, or projecting power in, uh, in 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 Northeast Asia to protect allies like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, Singapore? Is it to contain the spread of China uh, beyond these artificial islands that you mentioned that they're building? Um, is it to engage, as the president said yesterday, in productive competition or responsible competition in domains just beyond security, right, including trade, uh, climate change, public health, COVID uh, related matters as well. So those are questions of what are your goals? What do you think the intentions, the motives and intentions of Beijing are? Are they going to be satisfied uh, with their power at the moment? Or as an aspiring uh, superpower, great power, are they going to expand and, and try to secure their sphere of influence, right? If they act like the United States, we have no reason to think they won't, 
they're, uh, uh, it's a reasonable um, diagnosis to 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 think that they're going to expand and ho- hopefully or uh, aim to control uh, the South China Sea, their immediate neighborhood, right? Just as the U.S. during the 19th century controls the Caribbean and it's near abroad, the Chinese want to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So then the U.S. has to think, okay, what are our priorities? What types of security and economic commitments do we have to the Japanese, the South Koreans? And how far are we willing to go to protect their sovereignty and their interests, right? The key question there is over Taiwan. Um, which is um, uh, fiercely debated among experts of China, which I'm not, right? But that is a, that's one of the key concerns. A democratic ally, de- devastatingly close to the Chinese mainland. What types of U.S. commitments and, and resolve uh, will we demonstrate as the Chinese grow in, in power and influence? Mm-hmm. So, kind of hearkening back to this idea of fragile states, you know, Afghanistan's now more of a fragile state than it's been uh, in a long while. Um, do you ever think that this region or this country is going to be catatonic or is it going to continue to serve as a proxy for the disputations and competitions of world powers? Uh, say more. What, what, what do you mean by that? What... So it, it seems in you know all of Afghanistan history, you know, as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, you know, you have uh, conquerors like Darius I of Babylonia, Alexander the Great of Macedonia, uh, Mahmud of Ghazni in the 11th century. Um, and then again, you know, Great Britain and the USSR sure. um, in the region in the 19th century. Um, so it really seems like people have been fighting over this region for a long time. And it's been quite unstable um, in its history over the past 2,500 years um, to more so, more or less uh, serve the interests of those countries that are um, within its borders at the time. Um, so do you ever think that this region is going to be able to remove itself from the fragile state that it uh, seems to be sort of permanently fixed in? Or do you think it's just going to, you know, without end serve as a proxy for states like China, the Russia, um, the United States and try to serve their interests? Well, it, it seems as, as China is really developing out this Belt and Road Initiative, right? They're trying to rebuild or recreate the Silk Road in terms of trading, um, infrastructure development, uh, 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 resource extraction, petrocarbons, rare earth minerals, et cetera, right? It certainly seems that Afghanistan is going to play a role in that uh, as the Chinese expand their influence beyond their near abroad. Uh, the question of whether or not the Chinese um, engage in military adventurism as the U.S. and the Soviets and the British Et cetera, do that. that that's an open question. Uh, I'm fairly fairly confident that they're going to continue to pursue uh, rare earth minerals and resource extraction. But as we've observed elsewhere in other, or other fragile or developing contexts, the Chinese engage in their own form of state building that's quite distinct from what the U.S. and Western European allies are doing, right? Instead of focusing or uh, uh, having a quid pro quo and development assistance for liberal free and fair elections, for human rights, for rights for women... The Chinese are far more transactional, right? They'll come in, they'll provide uh, development infrastructure in exchange for access to resources, um, um, et cetera. And, and, they, and they, they cut you a favorable deal on a loan on the front end, but then when it comes due, the Chinese basically have ownership or, or influence over the mm-hmm. ports and all the infrastructure they build, right? They bring in their own label to build ports and, and highways and roads. And so despite the fact that they're... Um, fairly laissez-faire, unconcerned about human rights and democratic elections, they're still engaging in their own form of state building. And what's really interesting to see is in places like China, in in Afghanistan, is there going to be the same blowback effect? Are we going to see local Afghan resistance to yet another great power intervening, interfering in in Afghan politics and Afghan life? That seems to be a perennial trend in that part of the world, that military occupations trigger blowback. They trigger nationalist resistance. And so I, I would I would I would venture to guess that at some point the Chinese are going to encounter that as well. 
Absolutely. And, you know, like with the outcome of the pullout, it's going to be interesting to see how that, you know, plays out over the next couple of decades as we see this younger generation move up and assume these leadership positions. Um, so sort of bring it home a little bit, you know, with having all these uh, not only troops, but civilians and uh, Afghan citizens come to the United States. Um, something you mentioned before we got started is that there's going to be a lot of uh, Afghan refugees moving to the state of Utah itself. Um, is there anything that you know about that that you'd be able to share with us? Yeah. So as the uh, the, the U.S. Uh, pullout was happening in July and August, uh, Governor Spencer Cox of the state of Utah mentioned that uh, the state would be willing and able to provide resettlement uh, assistance to uh, refugees from Afghanistan that worked with U.S. allies. This would primarily be people that worked as translators, interpreters, contractors with the uh, ISAF, ISAF forces. And so um, uh, as, we'll, as we'll see here in the coming year, there will be uh, many Afghan families here coming to the United States. Uh, I'd have to check on the, the precise number of refugees coming to the state of Utah. They're going to be arriving in Salt Lake City through organizations like Catholic Refugee Services, as well as the LDS Church. And it's not um, unreasonable to assume that we'll also see uh, Afghan families resettled here in Cache Valley in northern Utah. And so the question for us as a university community, as faculty, students, and staff is, um, what is our role in welcoming and helping these families resettle and providing a, a a hospitable experience for someone that has left their home, has faced um, lots of these folks have faced trauma, um, lots of uh, very heartbreaking, difficult experiences. How are we going to welcome them to our community? And what responsibility or obligations do we owe them as U.S. citizens? And what would it mean to welcome them to the state of Utah and, and, Cache, and Cache County? Absolutely. And, you know, given that the issue of Afghanistan is so far away, you know, it's thousands and thousands of miles away overseas. Uh, it's been really easy for some people to just dismiss the issue. issue. But uh, now, you know, now that we have refugees coming to the state of Utah and very possibly Cache County, it's going to be really interesting to see the phenomena of, you know, people that feel so far removed from the issue interact with those refugees. But, um, you know, it's it's been a great conversation. I was wondering if there's anything that you wanted to share or think that we need to watch out for in uh, the coming years as things develop out there. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's been a great conversation as well for students or members of the university community. I teach courses on Middle East politics and U.S. foreign policy. Would love to have you join us and we'll, we'll explore these uh, topics more in depth, but appreciate being here. Thanks so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for coming, Dr. Nuppy. Like what you heard? Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you want to hear more. You can find me on Instagram at michael.popaii. You can also find the Utah Statesman on Instagram and Twitter at Utah Statesman. Or you can pick up our newspapers on campus and online at utahstatesman.com. This show is brought to you by the Utah State University Student Media. Copyright Utah Statesman 2021.